So with that said, if you're able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able, please stand with us in your heart. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Church, hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced without a doubt is dumb and dumber. Can I get an amen? Amen. If you've never seen it, let me give you a taste of film genius. Harry, played by Jim Carrey, is exiting a hotel in Aspen, Colorado, where he notices a framed newspaper clipping from the Denver Observer dated July 21st, 1969. The front page heading reads, Man Walks on the Moon, referring to Apollo 11 and Neil Armstrong. Harry glances at it and then rushes up to it and then turns around and says, No way! That's great! And then he bursts into the hotel lobby and he says, we've landed on the moon! Now, of course, this is funny because it's so utterly ridiculous. It's absolute. Therefore, people look to them for spiritual authority. And so that's a big part of why they clashed so sorely with Jesus. Because as Mark chapter 1, verse 22 says, Jesus came teaching as the one with all authority. And there was no take a little bit from Jesus and take a little bit from the Pharisees because they were in such contrast to each other. Either one or the other enlightened you on the way to God. Make your choice. And so that brings us to our first application that I want to urge you toward today. Love God's approval more than man's. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, Jesus was teaching his disciples about money, and he had concluded by saying, you cannot serve both God and money. You will either hate the one or love the other. Then we read this in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Now, this tells us a couple of things. First, Not just that the Pharisees loved money, but according to Jesus' formula, what's the implication of that? They loved money, therefore they hated God. But how can that be? Like, by all appearances, these guys were the most devoted to God and to keeping his law. But make the connection here. They are standing before Jesus Christ, ridiculing him. That's a word that literally means to Turn your nose up at someone. It's sneering, scoffing, showing contempt. It's the same thing that the Pharisees will do when Jesus is hanging on the cross 
And they say, if you're the son of man, save yourself. Say and do all manner of spiritual things, my friends, but turn your nose up at Jesus. And the Bible says that you hate God because you're rejecting his son. Second, this verse tells us a big part of why the Pharisees felt like the right thing to do in this scenario, the the spiritual thing to do, was to ridicule Jesus. You see, in the culture of that day, the thing to do was to ridicule Jesus. You see, in the culture of that day, being wealthy was taken as a sign that God especially loved you and was rewarding you for this. All that counts for nothing. Because for nothing. Because a right relationship with God depends not on outward appearance, but on the state of the heart. Think about this story of God seeing right through us. In the Old Testament, God's people wanted a king, and they chose their first king, Saul, because he was so tall and strong and handsome. He could fight their battles for them and look good doing it. But God rejected Saul. And then Samuel the priest is told to go to a man named Jesse's home, that one of the sons of Jesse there is going to be the next king of Israel by God's choice. And Samuel goes there and he sees Jesse's firstborn son, Eliab. And he's, guess what? Tall and strong and handsome. And Samuel's like, this is the guy right here. But here's what God says. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And y'all, the scary thing here isn't that, it's not just that God sees right through you. And so your self-justification then counts for nothing. No, it's not that. It actually counts against you because it convinces you that you have all the approval that you need. That you, need. you don't need anything else. Any of you all familiar with the, the phrase nose blind? You know, these have been on commercials recently for like potpourri or something. All right, and so the idea is you have a really, really bad smell on your person or in your house or in your car, and you've had it for so long that you've gotten used to it. You don't even notice it anymore. But then when somebody comes around you, they're not used to it. They smell it. It's terrible. You think you're over there great. They're over there like dry heaving around you, okay? (laughs) And when they leave your person or your house or your car, they're like, what, can you believe how bad that person smelled? Like, let's not go there anymore, okay? You've gone nose blind. And you see, self-justification makes you nose blind. You don't realize how bad you smell to God. And that's why Jesus, I think in this passage, effectively flicks your olfactory nerve up here in your nose to wake it up. Look at the rest of verse 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, abomination is one of those big Bible words, right? We like know it, but we don't really understand what it means. It means detestable, and it idiomatically carries the idea of something that smells really, really bad. And so the things that we think make us smell really, really good to God are actually the very things that make him dry heave in our presence. And see, the Pharisees had gone nose blind. 
They were completely out of touch with reality. And so what do we learn from this? Beware. Beware. Our hearts by default are nose blind. We long to have approval. And so we are pros at justifying ourselves. So I ask you, you know, what is it that you use to justify yourself, to make you right while others are wrong before God? Could it be like the Pharisees that you are respected, moral, intelligent, or wealthy? Is it because you made a profession of faith a long time ago in your life? Or you've been baptized? Or is it because you love everyone, you don't hate anyone? Or is it because you're a faithful spouse and you love your kids and you work hard? Is it because you have so many friends? Or is it because you don't need any friends? Is it because you know the Bible? You have better theology. And that's why you're justified. I'll give you mine. I've been in ministry for 20 years. I've been a youth minister. I've been a missionary. I've been a lead pastor. Y'all tell me in comparison to somebody else, how can I not be better than them? Look at how faithful I am. Look how I've suffered for Jesus. You know what? Sounds a whole lot like the Pharisees, doesn't it? So maybe let's put it this way. I want you to use your imagination with me this morning to engage in this sermon rather than just kind of listen inactively to it. So think of someone that you despise in your life, a specific person that you despise and you believe that you are set apart from them, okay? It can be Vladimir Putin, you know, it can be like Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or you're not political at all, it can be the person who like almost ran you off the road on the way to church this morning, you know, it can be that person that you work with that drives you crazy. It can be that parent, you know, that is on trial. Let me ask you, what is it in your mind that makes you feel as though you feel as though you are more justified than that person before God? What is that thing? You got it? You got it? That's what mean. The law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So here's why God's approval matters more than man's. Because there's a new authority in town. See, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament. And when he says that they were until John, he's saying that, that John the Baptist marks the concluding chapter of the Old Testament era. And with the arrival of Jesus, a new era has come. Why? The beginning of the book of Hebrews explains it really well. It says this, long ago at many times and in many ways was he doing without authority. You know, it's a scary thing, y'all. When people get absolute authority, what do they do with it? Scary stuff, man. You can use it for good, but man, you need some help to be able to do that. You need some accountability to be able to do that. Parents, you have absolute authority over your children and your household. What do we do with that authority sometimes? Not great things, don't we? We need accountability. We need help beyond ourselves when we have all authority. 
But Jesus, ain't he something? What does he do with all authority? (laughs) He's preaching good news of a new kingdom. And what do people do with legitimately good news? Well, they force their way into it. In other words, they get in on it, okay? So think about the shrewd manager that we talked about a couple weeks ago. He hears the bad news that he's about to lose his, his means of work and life. What does he do? He gets in on good news by kind of forcing his way into households that will keep him and provide for him in years to come. So think of it like this. I know that all of y'all have something in your life that when you hear it is suddenly available somewhere, whatever you're doing suddenly becomes irrelevant. And you immediately drop it to get in on that. Okay? If nothing's coming to your mind yet for you, okay, so one example would be a rare exotic bird that shows up at some point in and around Louisville. There are people, not myself, I'm not that crazy yet, but there are people who will drop everything and run to go see that bird and take pictures of it. Or there are people, probably in this room, who love bourbon so much that when you hear a really nice one is available at a cheap price, you run and get it before it's gone. Or there are people in this room, when you hear about the latest iPhone, you go stand in that really long line to get it. Or here's a really relevant for you that's going to bring up good memories. Toilet paper during COVID. <laughs> you know, need, I need to say no more about that. You heard that it was available and you needed to wipe. So you went and got some or sent a friend to get it. Okay. We know this concept. Okay. And so Jesus is like, what I'm offering here is so good that whatever people are doing has become irrelevant to them. And so they're dropping it to get in on this. That's what he's saying when he says that weird phrase about people forcing their way into it. But you Pharisees, you're turning your nose up at this because you love your own approval. You don't want in on this. That's what he's saying. You see, the Pharisees believed that they were keeping God's law well enough to be approved by God. But y'all, the bar for keeping the law is perfection. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So the reality is that convincing yourself that you can keep the law perfectly, that you can be good enough on your own authority, is like convincing yourself that you can jump to the moon. All right? Anybody know what the kind of average vertical leap is of the world's best athletes? Those who can jump the highest of anyone on the planet. Anybody know roughly? How many inches? About 40. Okay, about 40. It's pretty amazing. Defying gravity in that way. Anybody know how many inches it is to the moon? Well, as best as astronomers can figure, about 15 billion. Not to mention that you have to jump through the atmosphere and frigid cold and burning heat, no gravity. So it is absolute nonsense that the Pharisees would be this out of touch with reality, that they think they can fulfill the law and so foolish about it in front of everybody. Like, how can you be that dumb? But that's what sin does to all of us. It makes us think that we can be good enough, 
And so we work hard and we self-justify. And the scary thing is the end of the Old Testament era doesn't cancel out God's standard of perfection. Jesus says, yes, the good news of the kingdom is here, but, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. No, the perfect law of God lasts forever because the perfect God lasts forever. You see, this is what we call the doctrine of divine impeccability. It is that he cannot fall short. It is not even possible for him to do so because it's who he is in his perfection. All the way down to the tiniest dot of the Hebrew script. In other words, God measures up all 15 billion inches. It's who he is. And in order to relate to him, you have to measure up to that capacity, all 15 billion inches. And even though there's probably a subheading in your Bible here before the next verse in this passage, and then when I read it earlier, you probably went through your mind like, why is he including that weird dangling verse about divorce there on the end? How does that fit into this? I really think that Jesus' thought process actually continues here. What he's doing is showing the Pharisees that they're not even getting 40 inches off the ground. They think they're making 15 billion. He's like, yeah, I think you got two, all right? That's what he's doing here. You say that you're approved by the law and authoritative guides for it? All right, cool. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That is one of the 10 commandments, right? That's the basics of the law. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I imagine this would have been followed by awkward silence. Because the Old Testament law did seem to give provision for a man to divorce his wife, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 24. He can divorce his wife if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, by the, the way that this reads, it sounds like extensively here from the book Worthy by Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher. By the time Moses delivered the law to God's Old Testament people, divorce was already so commonplace that rules had to be made to regulate husbands' behavior toward their wives and to curb their abuse. Because it was a patriarchal society, weighted so heavily in men's favor already, God gave the rule to uphold marriage and to protect women. That's what it's in Deuteronomy 4. Otherwise, a husband could do any of the following. He could threaten his wife with desertion. He could throw her out on the street. He could change his mind after he had thrown her out and told her to come back and then get mad at her tomorrow and throw her out again. Or he could slander her as a deserter. And you see, instead, the husband had to give her a certificate of divorce, which then made it public to all that he was the covenant breaker. And that then allowed her to freely marry again. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
Thus, this law served more like a guide for husbands to stop mistreating their wives and to hold their wives and the covenant of marriage sacred as it was intended when God created Adam and Eve. Now back to the scene. There probably would have been awkward silence because the Pharisees had taken the heart of this law in the opposite direction. You see, they gave great liberties to men, including themselves, for divorcing wives. Even as much as, and this is written in rabbinical writings, even as much as if a wife spoiled dinner, you could divorce her. Or if a husband found a prettier woman, he could divorce his wife. So imagine the Pharisees' reaction when Jesus says that divorcing and remarrying and marrying a divorced person is adultery. Cricket, cricket. Okay? Now, he is not creating a new law here. What he's doing is he's getting at the very heart of the Old Testament law. If God seals the marriage, then that means he has the authority over its covenant. To then choose to break that covenant is no less than placing your authority above God's. God says, I sealed it. It's not broken, even if you say it is. So when you go and marry someone else, you're actually still under the first covenant, and therefore you are committing adultery. Now, disclaimer here. With greatest sensitivity to this flock, this is not all that Jesus teaches about divorce. He's setting forth a principle here to confront the hearts of the Pharisees and not to establish a rule that then applies to every single scenario. So here at Antioch, we believe that the Bible does teach that there are certain scenarios in which God allows for the marriage covenant to be broken and to be taken up again. And we believe that the gospel is sufficient such that the divorced and the remarried can find a place and healing in the church. And we as pastors shepherd people through these scenarios on a case-by-case basis. All that to say, what is happening in today's passage all comes down to the issue of authority. Who is the one with the authority in first century Israel? Is it Jesus or is it the Pharisees? And more importantly, who is it in 21st century America who has the authority? Is it Jesus or is it you? My friends, I urge you, love God's authority more than man's. Seek God's authority more than man's. And as is the case every week, at least I hope that you have found this to be true and taken notice of it. As is the case every week, I confess to you freely that what I have told you, so if you turn your nose up to your desperate need for a savior in the face of these things that I've preached to you today, then on his authority, you're gonna walk out of here nose blind. But here's some good news. 
Here's some good news to get in on. There is not a single dot of the law that Jesus didn't fulfill perfectly. And not just the outward conformity to the law, but he got the heart of it perfectly. And so that means in terms of jumping to the moon as a human being, Jesus made all 15 billion, okay? There is divine impeccability on display to you today. In other words, Jesus couldn't possibly fall short of anything besides all 15 billion because he's the one through whom God made the law and he is the one who will inherit it for all of eternity. Listen to this. He did not need to be exalted before men because he was already fully exalted before God. He did not need to seek approval anywhere. God saw into his heart and was well pleased with what he saw there. He did not need to lean on anyone's authority. He had all authority. He did not need a guide to keep covenant with God. Yo, he was God. (laughs) And yet, what did he do with all that exaltation and approval and authority and covenant? right? He has it all. What we do with all that authority are bad things. But what he did with all that authority, he laid it down, (laughs) laid it down. And he became the outward appearance of our, follow this with me. When Jesus is on the cross, you're not just seeing a man who didn't deserve to be there. You are smelling the results of your self-justification. You are looking at Jesus. You're smelling something really terrible. This is not the way it should be. What you're smelling is someone paying the price for your self-justification before God. Instead of exalted, he was laid low. Instead of approved, he was rejected. Instead of authoritative, he was powerless. And instead of covenanted, he was cut off. He became the abomination to God. He smelled really, really bad on the cross. Why? So that you, by grace, through faith, could smell really really good. Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but then raised for our justification. So you don't have to justify anything anymore. He, He was raised for it. He earned it for you in order to give it to you. So friends, this is the only way for you to get the approval that you long for. Trust in the one who died to take your place and then rose to give you his place. And for all of you who do that, you know what we can say? As crazy as it sounds, we can say, no way. That's great. In Christ, we've landed on the moon. Okay? You follow me? Did that just redeem Dumb and Dumber for you? 
There it is. What am I saying? What I'm saying is Jesus in his rising, when you trust in that for approval, he places on you his approval, his earned 15 billion inches so that when God looks at you, he sees one who's landed on the moon, who's fulfilled all the law perfectly. Like, wait a minute, no, I don't fill it all perfectly. I understand, but here's the thing. In him applying that to you, it's not just that you walk around and have that approval all the time now and you live however you want. No, it's that he gives you with it the power through the Holy Spirit to go and fulfill the law, right? To go out of here and to keep sacred the covenant of marriage. To go out of here and to live up to the fullness of what God calls us in the Old Testament. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. And you can do that. Why? Think of it this way. Earlier I had, you know, you use your imagination to put someone in this, this seat that's really despicable to you, detestable to you. And I told you, you know, like... Really, before God, like, that person may be getting two inches off the ground, and you may be getting 10 inches off the ground, but, like, that's not anywhere close to 15 billion, okay? So don't use that sort of formula for justification. Here's what I want you to do now. On the basis of the good news of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done, and the cross and the empty tomb, I want you to put yourself in this seat, okay? You're on trial, and who's right here? Jesus Christ, the judge's seat. And so what he says when all these things come at you, that you're condemned, that you're not enough, that you're not living up, you're not reading your Bible enough, you're not praying enough, you're not sharing the gospel enough, whatever all those things are that come up from within you and around you, Jesus is standing here going, I love you to the moon and you measure up all 15. Don't listen to him. I love you. And y'all, this may be, I may be getting crazy. I, you know, I, I definitely have some crazy in my life, okay? But I've gotten to the point where I started talking to myself. All right, I'm admitting this out loud. And what I'm saying is I'm giving voice to what I know the Father says of me, but it just spins in my head and something in there, you know, stomps it out. I just say, man, Brad, the Father loves you. Like, don't listen to that stuff. The Father is for you, not against you. Do you know that Jesus was glad to go to the cross for you? Do you know how much that he loves you to the moon? And he is delighted with you. He is proud of you. I'm saying it to myself. Why? Because I need to hear that. And I need brothers and sisters in Christ who will speak that to me when the story gets all twisted. All right? That's what I want to leave you with today. You're sitting on this bench and Jesus is clapping. All 15. You got him. I love you. Now go live with the freedom and the ability to live up to the law. I'm with you every day. And as the most tangible reminder of this, we come to this table. Y'all know we do this every Sunday. I've just been reading about the early church, and for them, they believed that the most central moment in their gatherings was communion, when they broke bread and took the cup together. And I believe the same thing is true. Before I'd even read that, I already was saying that about Antioch. I'm like, yes, I'm with the early church on this for once, okay? We come to this table, this climactic moment, remembering that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, Broke it. Did you hear that? Broke it. I can smell it. it. Smells good. It smells sweet. It's good bread, okay? But this, this is the smell of your justification. It's a good smell before God. And likewise, he took a cup of wine. After he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples. 
He said, this, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. I'm not going to drink it again until I sit in the kingdom of heaven and we drink it together face to face at a big old party. And you'll know without a shadow of a doubt that you measured up all 15 and that I'm for you, not against you, and that I love you to the moon. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. We are announcing today that through Jesus Christ, on his authority, we have God's approval. Amen? That is if you have trusted in him. If you have trusted in him, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, we invite you to come forward to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice, and to take it as the climactic moment of responding to what Jesus himself has spoken to your heart. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, don't come to this table. This is not for you. Instead, come to Christ. Turn to him. And then you can come and share in this later. All right? And if you need help with that and what that means, come and talk to one of us as pastors in the back. We'll pray with you. We'll help you walk through all of that. Let's pray, church. We bow before you get your approval. Lord, you know, you know how we come into this world and as children, we're longing for approval. It's why we're constantly saying, Daddy, look at this. Mommy, look at this. Lord, you are setting us up from to the early church saying, hey, Here's where we come for approval. Here's where we come to remember that we measure up all 15 billion. Lord, have your way in this moment. May you, by the power of your spirit, do things in our midst that though we may not see, are powerful and eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.